Hello everybody, my name is Oscar Ramos, Partner and Managing Director at SOSB. As we're giving up for our next demo day on November 24th, let's revisit some of our most memorable conversations about the venture capital landscape in Asia with renowned investors from Singapore, India, and China. Enjoy, and don't forget to sign up for next demo day to meet the 10 startups chosen for our latest cohort. Check out all the links in the show notes. We'll be back with a brand new season next month. Until then. But if you look at all, you look at some of these deeper SaaS models and the deep tech side, they have identified customers in the US who are very, very different from the customers here. And then what you think, actually what the founders have to look for and the investors have to look for very carefully. You know, we are learning for the first two years because you're spending less money, you can hire the team in India, you don't have to hire expensive sales force. And you, okay, great, you know, we'll get these targets in two years and then expand. But actually what you're doing is you're losing time because if your competition is global and your market is global, you want to be competing with the best in the world who don't care about these markets, right? So I think it really depends. We saw, for example, Capillary Tech, you know, which has become a leader in its own space, has a quite a strong Southeast Asia presence. Locus today, uh, you know, has very strong presence in India and Southeast Asia, and now is aggressively targeting the US. So there's no one size fits all, but eventually we've seen that in SaaS to truly scale, it's very rare when Indian companies can make it without penetrating the Western market. your host, Oscar Ramos, and you're listening to the Asia Startup Pulse podcast. You're looking glass into the Asian investment and startup ecosystem, hosted by the Global Venture Capital Fund, SOSB, and its cross-border accelerators, Chan Accelerator, and Mox. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Asia Startup Pulse. And today, I'm pleased to introduce our guest, Sanjay Nav, co-founder and managing partner of Bloom Ventures. Sanjay, welcome to the Asia Startup Pulse podcast. Thank you, Oscar. My pleasure. Sanjay is one of the most notable VCs in India. He has invested in over 100 startups in the past 10 years across different verticals, including EdTech, Unicorn, Unacademy, and widely known Indian startups like Dunzo, Serbify, Milk Basket, among others. He has a background in consulting in Silicon Valley, but came back to India, where he was also an active, early, uh, active uh, angel investor, and now turned into a fully-fledged VC. Uh, Sanjay, how is this background in consulting something that has been useful for you helping early stage founders? Great question to lead in. Uh, thanks again, Oscar, for having Bloom Ventures and me on. You know, it's interesting uh, yeah, when you look at these two fields of uh, consulting versus VC. There are a lot of commonalities, and there are and there is there are a couple of key differences. I think how it's helped is you know i think consulting has gave me and gives most consultants a range of experiences right to learn from to apply and with a lot of ambiguity right i mean when you're consulting for large companies there is less ambiguity but typically consultants are brought in when there's change right and you you need help to navigate and deal with that change and if you link that to the startup world it's very similar right you're dealing with disruption, innovation, contenders, challengers, incumbents. And in that sense, it's quite similar. Also, you're doing a lot of deep analysis, broad strategic thinking, trends, though that's also common, right? If you look at very often, you look at, you know, our ICs and the IC memos, 
there's a lot of both broad themes and also deep work that goes into that which again you know comes back to the core of consulting the difference though is that uh, you know consultants typically make recommendations you know to the board or to senior management but you're not necessarily accountable for the implementation of that you know in a startup in the startup world especially as vcs uh, you're doing all of that and then you're putting your money not only your money but other people's money right opm other people's money where your mouth is and then you're directly accountable for that so i think uh, i think a nice way to describe it is that that vc draws on you know the basic foundations of consulting but then takes that further right because you're actually making decisions that matter and you're accountable for making those investment and capital uh, allocation decisions. Yeah, I always like to say that a uh, VC is actually consulting with a different business model, different revenue model where where instead of getting fees up front or fees for the work done, you get compensated on the results that you're able to achieve. And it, it's tricky, you know, because a long-term type of game, yeah, you might have early exits, but most of the exits will actually take years until you can uh, you can actually get compensated for what you do. It's a great point uh, Oscar actually it is uh, it's a really long term alignment and uh, uh, you know uh, over over decades right i mean you think about investment cycles and you talk about 10 to year 12 12 year funds versus like a 5 year 3 to 5 year board plan right in the case of a consultant so very long term alignment Yeah, I actually like when you talk about all the IC memos, no? Because uh, I mean, I, I spent more time of my life uh, um, as, as consultant and uh, working mostly with uh, with multinationals or, or late stage companies in their pre IPO space. And it's quite interesting because um, because you were talking about the IC memos, and I think the IC memos are actually quite close because you have to justify things, you have to document things. Whereas in most of the other applications where you need to bring in your consultant skills to work with portfolio companies. The report doesn't actually matter at all. Actually, you don't need a report. You just need to, you just need the conclusion, and uh, and you make you can you want to make sure that everybody gets the conclusion. Everybody challenges the conclusion because everyone is very clear that what really matters is to get it right, not if you're right or not. Is to get it right, and if if you're if whatever insight you bring in helps and covers something else that that we don't know, and together we're able to find out the answer. Anybody's very happy with that. Great, great points. That's a great segue. Good. So you spend your your consulting time in uh, in the US in the Valley, and did you actually started investing in in Indian startups when you were uh, abroad in America, or was that something that happened when you came back? How was the tr- this transition from consulting to angel, and then eventually like a full time VC? Yeah, you know it's really interesting, uh, Oscar. It's almost like you know a, a career a decade, right? It <laughs> tells you how young or how old we are. But it's quite interesting and a bit ironical that uh, you know while I was in San Francisco for more than a decade, actually what I got uh, that relates to and helps me in my startup ecosystem is I got a broad and deep understanding of tech, right? Of tech, of the tech world, developed a technology orientation, a strategy orientation. But uh, interestingly, the exposure to to angel investing actually happened uh, back here in the cross border thanks to you know the Mumbai Angels which is one of India's first angel groups where Karthik uh, Reddy my co-founder I met so uh, in one sense it's the combination of uh, you know I was a senior uh, uh, I mean principal I was a associate partner with IBM and that would bring me to uh, India very often on a large outsourcing projects so that gave me the cross border experience but the actual angel investment kicked off uh, experience kicked off uh, thanks to the mumbai angels 
So I want to talk about uh, one of your core areas of expertise. Now, Bloom has a massive portfolio, but your area is mostly on these uh, Indian companies that are that are building global companies and expanding internationally. There's a few cases that are that are very notable and people knows knows about them. But can you share some insights about about what's happening right now in this in this space? Absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, if uh, some of you may remember Y2K, right, uh, around the turn of the century, uh, you know, when the numerals were changing and there was this whole Y2K sort of worry and uh, the year 2000 and the year 2K opportunity, uh, Y2K opportunity. And it's, uh, and what it did for India, uh, you know, with Wipro, Infosys, uh, Tata's and all the, you know, companies that came out, it's kind of a similar opportunity for uh, products being built out for, from India for the global market. And I'll explain a bit more on that. So a couple of trends here, right? I mean, if you see, if all of you have heard of the, like you said, there's some well-known names like Freshworks, for example, right? Now Freshworks, it's staggering, right? Uh, If you think about acquisitions that happened in the Indian landscape about 10 years ago, they would happen for about 50 to 100 million. Today, Freshworks is tracking at revenues of 300 million, right? So if you add your, look at your ARR multiples, you're talking about a multi-billion dollar company that is going to go public on the NASDAQ, right? And what that's done is that it's just created a whole flood of B2B aspirants, right? Who are basically building, uh, you know, from India for the world. That's that's one trend, right? The second uh, that really excites us, you know, about this trend is that 2020 in one sense showed that it doesn't really matter where you're building software and platforms from, right? You have to, of course, sell them to the North American and to the Western uh, market to really achieve scale. But whether you're building like a Canva from Australia or a you know UI path from Romania, this is a huge option, you know, for Bangalore, Pune, uh, uh, you know, Delhi uh, to build uh, to build this. Because if you what you basically need is you need you know access to fantastic connectivity, you need uh, great talent which is available by the droves in India, and then of course you need you know great lead generation which again the Indian companies have pioneered, and of course market access right that's the only thing that remains in the West. So that's the second point. And just to quote some examples, I'll give you you know some examples from our stable. Uh, you may have heard of some of these, but uh, uh, one that's close to heart is a robotics company called Gray Orange Robotics that uh, you know has become a leader in warehousing automation. Now, this is one of our first investments. You know, this almost goes back to our start in. 2020 in, in 2012 and uh, this is a great team that had de- developed India's, India's first humanoid robot you know they they won uh, second prize at the robotics competitions that they would have in Japan and uh, today basically become a, you know a leader uh, in uh, in robotics automation and as you know other investors include Tiger Global and Mithril Capital which is one of Peter Thiel's funds and the reason I mentioned that is that it's a great example of, of you know, two brilliant product engineers, founders coming out of India who see a global market and then able to go and, you know, hire a team, build and scale. And we're just going to see many, many, many more of these. So this is my particular area because I, I don't like to call it arbitrage. Uh, it's not just about cost savings and, you know, labor savings, but it is really that where building a globally distributed model, what elements of your business should be where, right? Okay, so you have R&D and CTO remains in Bangalore. You know, maybe there is an innovation center in uh, in the Silicon Valley, but your sales head may be in, on the East Coast or maybe even Europe, you know, because there's a large market there. So I think these companies are evolving and learning and mentoring from other founders like Freshworks and the others rapidly. So, so very, very bullish on this segment. 
I mean, obviously, I mean, I think at least my experience, even before we started, uh, like uh, two, three years ago, investing in in startups in uh, in India, like we've seen the massive amount of talent that you have in India, like incredible talent, and and like I mean, it's fair to say that it's also very price competitive. So you have that supply side, that that production side, especially for the software industry, that that brings a massive competitive uh, advantage to, to startups that, that are able to have, as you said, look, the CTO and, and the development there. But, I mean, over time, as a startups, uh, the startup world becomes more mature, technology is important, but uh, but we've seen, and, and I think we're going to continue to see companies that even if the technology is not superior, they're able to add that layer on top of the technology, this UX, this UI, the, the product element that is able to drive not just a technology, a piece of technology, but bring a solution. And one of the challenges when you're building products, particularly products that are going to be like SME type of products, not, not, not just pure enterprise, but products that will have somehow a dynamic of, of usage that, uh, that somehow reminds you to the consumer internet products. You need to you need to be close to you need to be able to understand the user. You need to be able to communicate with them, and and you want to have a type of communication that sometimes remotely becomes a bit a bit challenging. How are startups like building these, and and, and what are the strategies they're using to to overcome that barrier? When, as you said, the market, especially when you're targeting these type of uh, sectors, is actually abroad. A great question. So, a couple of you know, couple of uh, themes that you touched upon, uh, you know, as we answer the question. One is there was always, you know, there were there were two divides between these worlds of ours, right? For example, if you look at, you know, the uh, the, the the physical uh, or even the private equity world and the VC or the digital world, right? For example, I just started with the broadest uh, difference, right? Private equity, for example, would not even invest in these companies because they were pure digital and technology and neither. So I think that world is coming together. But to your question about even B2B versus consumer internet, right? These two worlds are also different, always different. With SMBs or the prosumer, right? Professional consumer, if you look at it, UI, UX, and uh, the presentation layer, usability, accessibility is making a world of difference because, you know, it's the same uh, persona, right? Uh, uh, you know, with a different hat. You know, in our personal time, we may spend time on whether it is a Dream Eleven or Instagram or you know, sports fantasy team, and we use to us a fantastic UI UX, right? In terms of one touch, one touch click from Amazon or what have you, and then suddenly you go and look at this clunky SaaS uh, or on-premise model, right? And you say something is not working. So if you look at uh, SaaS, right? You look at whether it's a fintech like a Stripe or you know payments or uh, you know just vertical SaaS. I think UI UX has become very, very important. So those learnings from consumer internet can also be applied to SaaS because eventually your uh, user, whether they're sitting in Palo Alto, Berlin or Shanghai, they, in one sense, they really want to use world-class products. They don't care where they build. Now, you ask a good question, that how do you build that, right? How do you bridge that gap? And this is where, uh, uh, Oscar, uh, the uh, Indian ecosystem and the cross-border system has matured a lot. So what we are seeing now, you know, and what we're doing on our cap tables, you didn't have 2x founders, right? You didn't have uh, product designers, graphic designers. Uh, it was basically first-time founders. And then VCs were been typically just consultants or bankers. You know, the VCs also were on their first funds, first-time founders. So in one sense, everybody's learning for the first time, right? So when you have first time, you either have brilliant, brilliant successes or you have failures because everybody's making their mistakes for the first time. Today, because there's such a plethora of founders who've been there, done that, exactly the kind of question that you are, you're talking about, 
we actually bringing them on the cap tables right you know they're helping twitch founders are helping first time founders and there is a pool in fact we have a full platform team and uh, you know that helps with community with uh, business development with fundraising with hiring uh, with uh, finance and accounting also cfo services and i think that this ecosystem and the platform approach can go a long way because we are very realistic it is not like one vc one person is going to help this company right how do you build a full platform that can help this so you are absolutely right i think these lines are blurring between uh, consumer internet and there's lots to be learned from the you know why i'll give an example there was a, a site that is now i think getting sold but cleartrip uh, was is beloved in india for seller ui ux you know one of the best you know compared to make my trip and the others because make my trip has done extremely well but it was not able to scale on its own but the ui ux everybody talks about it you know the design team from player trip if they could hire them if they could work with them so it is important and it will actually be even more important for india because it will show that we can make world class products which also look uh, and are easy to, uh, great to look touch and feel and also to use i had my own experience when i was traveling in india and i could see myself like using more certain sites than others because of the usability and, uh, and i mean for me not not that used to to the local approach and uh, obviously as a, as a as an outsider of the of the common practices um i could see that that definitely there were there were some challenges with uh, with some of the um, some of the uh, local players but i mean i want i want to go about that so i want to go deeper on, on that topic because i think that that's very important no? i mean that that's important and bloom has been quite successful and and seems that one of the secrets of that success is that support that you bring to the founders Uh, to be able to help them get to the next level through the implementation of best practices. I mean, we have a similar approach, and then one of the challenges that that uh, that that happens is well, at the end of the day, you need to bring in talent to to the companies. Like, there's a moment where you can use your your, your centralized resources to help the companies, and it's actually. I mean, if you have like enough experience, your team will learn really fast. Like you, you're able to accumulate a lot of uh, of know-how, a lot of uh, knowledge that you can use to support the companies, and and you can transfer that part of that knowledge to to the companies. But eventually, you're you're helping the companies like zero to one, one to ten, and and there's a lot of learning from from the ten to to a hundred. No, like every time we do a board with companies or we're working with companies specific challenges, we, we learn a lot that can be transferred. But those are the companies that that need to be able to get get access. So how do you build international? teams i mean what's a challenge to build these international teams when the companies are starting from india is it a prerequisite that these founders need to have also their own network and their own previous experience uh, internationally to build those networks no great question again you know there's no one formula but i'll just share some examples and some models that we found are working right because now we've been investing for about 10 years and uh, you know got quite deeper into you know the whole uh, b2b cross border side so and of course you know that india and uh, the us are quite well connected right especially in silicon valley to bangalore of course we are also present in in europe and uh, singapore and southeast asia a couple of the geographies so a couple of examples i think one group of founders are the ones who let's say for example are targeting the us uh, uh, north american or the western market and have studied and worked and already one founders there right so uh, that makes it much easier because they are already very familiar with the local market with the customers have their own rolodex and then typically one founder depending on the age decides to move back and that whole cross border model has been proven so well right if you look at nexus in the valley they one they were you know they are active backers of that they were one of the pioneers who you know pioneered the soul they were one of the first vcs that started investing in cross border b2b right stand alone Uh, and uh, so that's one model 
the other is uh, uh, and in general uh, oscar you'll also find that the b2b or the enterprise tech founders tend to be a little older on average than the consumer internet right because consumer internet very often you're going after new models your demographics are could be anywhere as young as 20s to 30s right the enterprise tech you're selling to customers who are looking for sophisticated mature bets and they don't want to you know lose their jobs taking risky bets on some new startup right so you're dealing with a more sophisticated crowd you're sometimes working on on some things that are a bit less uh, we call it like uh, like the shiny objects so some of these uh, some of these b2b sent to be like okay, these are these are things that keep me awake at night and i know they're keeping awake at night a lot of people but they might not be the next next exciting thing that will wants to to run for no so that that requires a very deep understanding of the operation part that's right that's right so that's that's one group and the other group is uh, you know earlier you you see a lot of people coming from the services the consulting organization the system integrator the sis right infosys wipro accenture ibm coming out and also starting b2b businesses that's one model but typically one thing that we've learned uh, that i've learned uh, oscar is that you know however strong your product and technology backbone and your team Uh, you have to be close to your customers and what does that mean right uh, before the lockdown uh, you had to be in front of them right literally right i mean now people are rethinking you need to take a flight you know from from bombay to shanghai or from bombay to berlin just to for two key customer meetings you know can you do lead generation strongly from here do sales prospecting via zoom and then maybe go there to close the final deal uh, but the fact is you have to have some strong proprietary customer access because i think without a strong go to market engine even the best products uh, you know do fail so that's one so what we are looking for now in our models to build the answer your question about international teams i think uh, so i'll give an example right we have a young startup called pixel which is a space tech startup uh, they're also juniors of mine from bitspilani and what they're doing is they're all of 24 years old 23 or 24 and they are building uh, nano satellites that will go into space to capture hyperspectral imagery that then can be beamed down and used by agri tech companies by oil and gas companies to make better decisions to make the world also a better place right reduce carbon emissions and things like that now they incorporated as us entity they have advisors and uh, they were incubated by techstars los angeles as an example this is all public news they have some advisors who are very deeply entrenched in the space tech industry and then you know we came in lightspeed ventures is also there growx ventures i'm using that as an example of how even young founders are thinking about building out these companies right i mean and they they uh, had launched they were actually part of the techstars los angeles incubator even before they came to us right so that's an example of a proactive founding team that's going out across so either you are close to the customer or you're building linkages to close to the customer what we are trying to measure is This is great. You have a great product and you have a great team. Uh, do you know who you're going to sell it to? How big a pain point is it? How much are they going to pay? Even if they're not paying you today, and you have a way to access that, right? I mean, can you make your? Uh, we 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 are not uh, we are not a strategic investor. We're not just investing in access to technology, right? We have to figure out if you found a way to monetize this massively. So yes, to answer your question, I think uh, uh, building international teams is important. It can happen down the line. I think what we're looking for founders is. the ones who have the answers even if they may not have it all in place but they have a very firm path or path of how they will pull this together uh, you know the cto is maybe based in bangalore the ceo remains uh, in california and they will hire a head of sales after two years for the first two years they just do india india driven lead generation sales which is fine it is more the uh, roadmap and the path than uh, having it all in place they want 
Well, definitely when, when you're in best early stage, you know that, uh, that if you're looking for perfection and you're looking for everything to be there, it's most likely not an early stage company. Everything like uh, might look really good on paper, but then when you start looking at things, there's always uh, gaps. Just on a different note, when uh, you talked about looking for per- perfection, that's what Pep Guardiola was looking for in the Champions League, right? <laughs> but he was looking for too much perfection, wasn't able to win it. So I think you're right. It has to be just perfect enough, right? You have to make the decisions based on uh, the information that's available and continuously be improving, right? I think that flywheel of learnings, I think the founders, they can they learn from mistakes, learn from other mistakes and continu- continuously improve uh, and achieve and strive to, uh, towards that rate versus having it 100% working on day one. Hmm. Yeah, totally. I mean, that, that, that definitely. And, and obviously, that complication no, is what brings to cross-border startups where, yeah, you have your home market, you have to develop, but when you have like development and the market and the customers in different parts of the world, there's a need to uh, to like have very strong coordination and, and very, very solid communication, which initially like adds a bit of a, a, a as a filter no for for companies and and once they have that that into place that builds a foundation for better scalability you know when you are already by default having to to work across markets across time zones then expansion becomes something more natural no? that's something that uh, that for example in, in Europe we've seen a lot startups coming from a from a from northern Europe where you have like smaller markets by nature where the companies need to be global by design so, like from day zero, they already start thinking about about internationalization. Whereas uh, in in other markets, where you have a really large domestic market, sometimes you end up localizing um, and and becoming very competitive in in that market, and that that localization will make you less competitive to to other markets. No, particularly we've seen that a lot in um, in companies in uh, in China. Is that something that you've seen in 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 the case of of Indian companies, or you see these cross border Indian companies being built? From for international markets from uh, from the start, or or are those companies able to to work and develop on on the domestic market and then jump internationally? And and, and what is the best time? What is what they can do locally in India? And then what is the time to jump? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, again, I think that different models. There's no one answer, but I, I'll tell you what we have learned and what uh, what I believe. I think if you're developing a SaaS model or enterprise tech only for India then it's difficult to scale because the market size is only so big enough and while the, the digital adoption has taken off, it is the scale and the speed isn't there uh, like you have in the Western markets, right? So usually the models is exactly like you described. Option one, which is which happens more typically because you know you are bootstrapped, you don't have funding, is where you localize, you learn, you do your initial wins, project wins. Uh, and, you, you know, if you get lucky, what you do is you try it with some of the MNCs, right? You do it with the Unilever or, you know, Microsoft or somebody, which is more global, right? Because then the extension is much easier globally, but you do that for the Indian market. Then sometimes you expand to Southeast Asia because it is a little more accessible culturally. Also, for example, if you look at uh, Jakarta, uh, sorry, Indonesia and India, also similar internet penetration and, uh, you know, demographic, demographics also similar. Of course, they have one language, we have many languages. And then you, uh, you know, move eventually transition to the US. But the new breed of startups they're just saying is you don't want to waste time at all. For example, I'll tell you, for example, especially in vertical SaaS or in DevOps, right? Or if you look at, you know, incident management, I'm getting a little technical here. But if you look at all, uh, you, you look at some of these deeper SaaS models and the deep tech side, they have identified customers in the US who are very, very different from the customers here. And then 
what you think actually what the founders have to look for and the investors have to look for very carefully we think you know we are learning for the first two years because you're spending less money you know you're uh, you can hire the team in india you don't have to hire expensive sales force and you, okay great you know we'll get these targets in two years and then expand but actually what you're doing is you're losing time because if your competition is global and your market is global you want to be competing with the best in the world who don't care about these markets right i think it really depends uh, we saw for example capillary tech you know which has become a leader in its own space has a quite a strong southeast asia presence locus today you know has very strong presence in india and southeast asia and now is aggressively targeting the us so uh, there's no one size fits all but eventually we've seen that in saas to truly scale it's very rare when indian companies can make it without penetrating the western market We hope you're enjoying the episode and if you're an entrepreneur building a cross-border business, feel free to contact us at chanaccelerator.com or mobileonlyx.com. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the in some cases, you're talking about markets that uh, have a lot of uh, habit of uh, of uh, of using the technology. There's sometimes a higher higher spend, and there's also an element of uh, of revenue models. No, I mean, uh, one of the things that uh, that we've seen besides those those elements that sometimes are a bit more uh, visible from the outside world, there's still a lot of uh, a lot of perception of uh, of SaaS models being very uh, subscription based. Whereas in uh, in Asia we've seen more more performance based type of uh, revenue models. What are you seeing in in that space? Uh, you mean like SaaS versus uh, like pay? As, uh, I mean uh, pay for performance. Yeah, more like pay as you go or like performance um, revenue compared to a, a more like flat subscription with more predictability. Are, are you seeing like a like that being something that that some of the Asian or Indian uh, SaaS companies bring to the US that this gives them an advantage or or they go straight to like the subscription monthly service? Yeah, you know, actually, it's it's interesting. I think it's it's a bit of a combination of both. Uh, I mean, the classic, uh, you know, uh, trial subscription for thirty days and then uh, freemium and then premium. I think that's the most popular. Uh, I think what we're seeing is that see, uh, you know, I used to be with IBM, uh, you know, a couple of days, decades ago when they invented the whole on-demand model, right? And the prediction then was from the consulting firms is that the whole world is going to move to pay-as-you-go, and if you don't, you know, you're not happy, then you don't pay, right? But uh, you already you already incur all these costs. So it's very, it was not not a very it sounded from a marketing for marketing uh, uh, chief marketing officer it was a dream. But when you look at the implementation on the CFO uh, for for the CFO, it's very difficult to sustain that. So I think we're seeing a combination. See, I think what's happened is today, uh, Oscar SaaS has is no longer like a I think segment. It's actually a business model, right? I know you also use that word. I mean, today we have Gray Orange. Uh, we have Gray Orange, which is uh, today becoming a building a robotic SaaS business. SaaS has become more of a business model today, right? So it can be applied to so many different industries. So I think it is here to stay. In fact, we also have a large domestic uh, uh, SaaS pool here. Uh, uh, no pool in the sense uh, you also have, like you know, uh, one of our companies today just got announced, raised, has raised a CDC round from Tiger Global, right? A company called Class Plus, just public in the news today. Now, if you think about it, it's an edtech company, right? We think about the consumer market in India, but actually, it's a it's also a SaaS company. It's an edtech B two B SaaS company. So SaaS has become, I think, a business model of paying, a way of subscribing uh, that is going to be here for a while. So I think you can have a combination of both. You can do SaaS and also a bit of pay as you go based on performance. Yeah, definitely seen a lot of. Uh, I mean, the software enterprise software uh, space, I think, right now is super exciting. There's a lot of changes, and and if there's one thing that uh, that COVID has proved is that these 
digital transformation that looks very beautiful on PowerPoints, uh, if it's actually not implemented in the right way and companies cannot actually do things, it has less value. And, and SaaS has such a strong value in terms of, uh, of fast implementation, fast testing, and switching costs that is relatively simple in some cases. It's obviously like enterprise SaaS, which integrations can be a bit more more complicated, but obviously any any new entry in the market that, that could potentially go targeting any of the incumbents will build those solutions to try to, to work. But what uh, I mean, talking about, about COVID no, and, and talking about internationalization, there's actually a debate in the industry and, and more specifically on the cross-border startup ecosystem about, okay, has COVID been good or bad? Has COVID been something that uh, that created a lot of trouble or, or or has COVID actually been positive? I'm pretty sure there's no yes, no question. There's a, that depends. So can you share like cases where you see, okay, COVID has been like great accelerator for these type of companies, that stage, those industries, or COVID has really become a, an, an obstacle for companies that, uh, that were at that stage or in this type of industries, particularly on the SaaS space? Yeah. But, you know, I, I just, I think overall the phenomenon has been so terrible and, you know, at the personal level, right? At the personal, global and the, the human level and the health level, obviously. So, you know, uh, I, I won't, don't like to say there's anything good about it. But I think uh, the second order effects, uh, you know, that's the right way to put it. I think it depends on what industry you sat in. And since we're talking about SaaS, it has been overall a tailwind. And uh, I'll explain in a couple of ways. I think one, it has made the world a great leveler, right? We always like to say it didn't really matter where you are. Now, today it doesn't really matter, right? Because even your buyers are sitting in their living rooms or wherever they are, or even they've moved and no, you know, people haven't returned to offices like full-time, right? So in one sense, it's made remote work the, the de facto, right? So that's one second order effect. So in that sense, it's positive. Now, the other part that it's also done is that it just tremendously reduced just cost of working. I was just reading like, Oscar, even Google, I think apparently saves, saved $1 billion last year from remote working, right? So in terms of how you work. Now on the flip side, uh, so so it has been massive payments for industries like EdTech, SaaS for EdTech, right? For, for the education industry. Of course, for e-commerce delivery, if you have any SaaS models there. For FinTech, SaaS also it has been t- taken off. And definitely for SaaS overall, whether it is uh, DevOps or you know, um, uh, robotics or just software or just platforms that are coming together, SaaS platforms, there's been an overall positive. Now, on the, t- on the tougher side, on the human capital side, it's been tougher, right? Because if you're a startup starting today, how are you recruiting, right? How are you, earlier, uh, you know, you'd get the founder going to the US or just flying coast to coast or flying to Berlin or something to recruit his head of European sales. But today, you've got to do that Zoom by Zoom, both sides. How do you assess people? How do you really get into... Is this person going to be a long-term player, right? Those human aspects are difficult to assess on Zoom. I feel, and this is true, and I'm sure you also see this, existing relationships are definitely being strengthened thanks to Zoom. New business development, new closures, the pipe, people are ready to give time faster, but the closures are also taking longer, right? Because uh, you have to have many more touch points in that process before you close. So that's a tougher part also. Uh, in India, at least, you know, I'll give an example. This is a revelation to me also, Oscar, that, uh, you know, about 50% of the Bangalore startups are from non-native people, right? They are, even the founders are non-native Bangalorites, uh, Bangaloreans rather. They're born to Bangalore and definitely most of the teams. So they went and for 2020 and even today, most of them have been working remotely. Now, how do you forget managing your customers remotely? How do you even manage your team remotely? Different kinds of challenges. 
But uh, the same thing in the US, right? Uh, people have uh, sort of gone back to their hometowns to spend time with their parents. So I think uh, on the and on the mental wellness and the physical wellness and energy side, in some sense, the positive has been that it's got people let people spend more time with the family and with their loved ones and do things because they don't have to commute. But on the other side, it's also tougher because there are a lot of young single people alone, right? And uh, what does that do to your productivity? You know, earlier you could, some was greater in the parts, uh, startups would sell their offices as one of the biggest differentiators, right? Come there for their work environment. And now, you know, you're working from your living room or your bedroom. How do you feel about that? So it's a mixed edge. But overall, I think for, for B2B, it's certainly been a tailwind. And uh, I think Bain and Bain and uh, Silicon Valley Bank have the report that predict that there are going to be many more unicorns in B2B from India. And while the bar earlier was, you know, a billion dollar valuation with the unicorn, now the bar is a billion dollars in revenues that bar has been raised. So we're very bullish overall. It has been a tailwind from that aspect. Yeah, I mean, definitely we've seen how, how this has been really painful from a human dynamic everywhere. I mean, our own portfolio has been like a, like very tough and a, and and from that point of view, that there's there's no question, and uh, and really looking forward to things to slowly get get better, and, and I think we're gonna get there. Um, there's obviously a lot of collaboration to try to make things uh, things happen, but it's good to try to stay positive, no? Because at the end of the day, we need to move on, and we need to like as as, as technologies and as, as the drivers drivers of innovation need to find a way to try to help, no? And um, there's certain industries that uh, that have been critical, no? We've seen like a uh, cross-border e-commerce companies helping to bring in more like a uh, health supplies to support or, or distribution companies uh, supporting that area, education companies, entertaining companies, everybody trying to to provide what, what they have. But what has been um, interesting with this move is how, as you were saying, no, the, the, the flatness of the wall has been even more, like, more than, than, than it was. This expansion in terms of sales that in the past would require multiple meetings uh, offline and will require obviously uh, will create a, a barrier of access for for a lot of uh, for a lot of companies because you have to uh, you need to have the resources to travel you need to have the time to travel and obviously everything will be slower where now it's like well in one week you can have like three meetings with the same organization and um, and you can have in one day meetings with potential clients from from literally all over the world so that that has created an opportunity and seems that this report that you mentioned is predicting that's going to help everything everything uh, um, explode and, and and make things like bigger. We talk about about expansion, and I and I think was quite interesting when you mentioned. Well, you know, there's different there's different paths. You have those that that will have something locally, then maybe expand to Southeast Asia. When you have markets that that culturally and and from some elements will have more similarities, and then eventually they'll go to to the US or or, or Europe as a as larger more more established markets but um we miss a big market no that um, that we haven't talked and i'd like to to hear your thoughts about the opportunities for for indian saas companies indian software companies in china because china is also becoming a very it is a very large market and and it's also uh, the saas industry and the software industry is growing um dramatically here yeah, interestingly, uh, you know, the Chinese India, the history uh, has been largely and traditionally more on the consumer internet side, as you know, uh, right from the investments in Paytm and uh, especially in, you know, in fintech like Paytm and then all the e-commerce, uh, the e-commerce spaces, thanks to Baba and all the others. SaaS is quite interesting, you know, maybe for cultural reasons, we've always been going more westward. Uh, East, East has been mainly restricted to Southeast Asia, even Japan in some senses. I'll give an example. We have a, one of our interesting 
I wouldn't call it, yeah, it's SaaS, but it's B2B deep tech, right? Which is broadly SaaS. It's basically a virtual cardiologist AI platform for healthcare, right? Called Tricog. And what Tricog basically does is that, uh, you know, it has an algorithm and it can, that algorithm can predict if somebody's going to have a heart attack or a stroke. And uh, it also has a hardware component where they partner with GE and other, uh, you know, manufacturing uh, companies. And interestingly, they, are, they have active China operations. They have a China business. So in one sense, they, it is SaaS for China. Now, you know, we were all surprised when we heard about it, but the founder is a cardiologist himself, very strong founding team of two PhDs and him and another fourth person and said, no, it's a really interesting market. And also I think the province of Wuxi has been uh, rolling a a lot of uh, tax and startup advantages and innovation center there. So we were pleasantly surprised, you know, to see that SaaS as a a home. I think it is, uh, you know, on the other side, I think it's a language and just, not lack of access, but just the fact that, you know, it's not been done too much earlier. You know, we, we have so many examples of uh, Silicon Valley to Bangalore that uh, sometimes people, you know, follow the path of least re- resistance, right? And look at, you know, where it's done before and just jump on that. But it's an interesting, uh, it's, it's an interesting market. I think we need local partners. I'm very clear that this is a good topic to bring us into partnerships, Oscar, because, you know, uh, this is, I think, an interesting trend. After 2020 has shown that you can't and should not do things alone. A, you can't fly. People are not as mobile as they were before for obvious reasons. Uh, so where do you partner? You know, do you hire local? Do you hire local head of sales? So Dave Tricot has hired an American who speaks fluent Chinese, Chinese-American and uh, or then you partner with a local local firm, you know, in that area. So it will drive. Uh, I think it's interesting, certainly, but partnerships will become more important. Yeah, I mean, definitely these. I mean, this is a this is an ecosystem where there's a, there are a lot of opportunities, um, particularly for you were talking. The example that you were quoting, I think, was really good. No, these these deep tech, very specialized type of uh, of startups, where at the end of the day, like the, the usage of SaaS, I think, is a sign of a of a maturity of the market productivity and competition becomes very very relevant and key the key question is like can you provide value can you make me more more efficient and um, and there's certain certain industries where where objectively you can say yes and um, and you can you can look at the numbers and um, and, and explore what um what uh, what you can do that that potentially can can answer the question and at the same time you have these localization challenges that uh, sometimes might be a bit more more difficult no like like the, the diasporas uh, help a lot with international expansion, but sometimes the, the the China ecosystem is a bit more more close and, and require very specialized partners to to be able to um, to expand. But how are you seeing that in, in other parts of the world? I mean, how are you seeing these um, these these uh, leveraging like ecosystems and, and and diasporas to be able to to expand to other areas? No, because the U.S. is a, is an interesting market. It's a large market. It's English, which is the second. I mean, English is the second language for anybody that doesn't speak English, the first language. Uh, but when you go to Europe, Europe is kind of funny because you, we talk about Europe, but then it's extremely fragmented with uh, with languages, best practices, local partners. Even if there's a there's a regulation that allows you to to play like in the whole region with a single entity as a domestic player, there's also like some some specific regulatory limitations per per country. So how are you like looking at these partnerships with ecosystems as a as a way to support expansion? No, absolutely. I'll give you an example. You know, in the uh, I'll get to Europe in a bit. Uh, again, I think it's all about partnerships and it's about finding good local partners who can either come into your platform or, you know, just uh, like-minded 
similar VC firms or, you know, other platforms. So I'll give an example. Until last year, we were part of the Draper Venture Network, which itself is going through a transition. And it's a great example. I think the reason we did it is that Tim Draper, you know, who's the founder, who you'd know, of course, from Draper Fisher, here it's a famed Silicon Valley investor and angel. It is a collection of like-minded VCs across the world, typically one in every country that, you know, wants to learn, wants to put in more into the network and they can all help each other find with their portfolio companies helping, you know, each other find customers. And that took us into, you know, Latin America, Europe, Japan, two, three years ago, a venture called Arka Venture Labs, A-R-K-A. And uh, that was basically in partnership with with two Valley VCs, Emergent Ventures and BGV, uh, Eric Benamo, who's the founder of 3Com. Again, to just fuel cross-border innovation, you know, between, let's say, Bangalore and the Valley, uh, small checks, you know, quarter of a million dollars, but another example of tapping into the local ecosystem, right? In Europe, we have not, uh, we have a few LPs who are European and, you know, uh, again, like for reasons that you mentioned, you know, there is, you know, somebody says, I'm, I'm catching a flight to Europe. You say, okay, great, but where in Europe, right? <laughs> I mean, there's so much diversity and so many countries. I mean, look at the Euro, right? Look at the fashion. Everybody has their own culture and language and, you know, and uh, customs and mores. Whereas in the US, of course, you have different accents, but it's quite uniform across, right, in that sense. So Europe is navigating different challenges. Huge market. Uh, you know, one of our companies from a new fund, which is in the, again, B2B space, uh, in the testing space, very interestingly, getting half of the business from your uh, 10% from India, almost half from Europe and half from the US. So I was really surprised. Substantial business from Europe, which means it's such an important market. But I think Indians traditionally have not made the same inroads they've done into the US. So huge market. So Sanjay, thank you very much for your sharing and for giving us more and more insight about how India companies are expanding internationally that hopefully could be useful for uh, founders that are, that are developing their pieces cross-border. I mean, a- any parting thoughts, anything that you'd like to share based on your, your like, years of experience and success working with uh, helping companies uh, like develop global businesses from, from India? Sure, Oscar. Thanks again for having me on SYS3. You know, I would say it's interesting, right? We're in 2021 thinking about this next decade. I think one theme is that unless they're just developing for the Indian market, most Indian founders and most founders want to build global from day one. You know, so it's a very ambitious and tall ask, which is wonderful. And I think in that quest, what we are finding is that we are finding ourselves increasingly collaborating with micro VCs such as yourself or like, you know, others. I'll give you an example. In FinTech, for example, we said rather than partnering maybe with just another Indian VC, let's partner with somebody from the Valley because the learnings will really help this uh, company, right? Because they've similarly invested there. So I think that's a very important trend we're finding that because founders want to go global, how can we help them, right? From the clap table to how they're building out the platform. I think that's a big trend. The other is also uh, that in India, treasury liquidity was always an issue. You have great startups, great founders, talent, but you know, exits took very long. Now, Zomato and uh, and uh, delivery, you know, they set to do an IPO on the Indian stock exchanges. Freshworks will, you know, list in the US. And that's very important uh, to show the confidence of the recycling of cash in and out of the Indian ecosystem. And uh, the last one, I'll say, Indian founders and Indian VCs generally are very collaborative. Uh, we are always looking to partner and to learn. So I really welcome the opportunity, and so does India, and so does Bloom to you know, partner more with global VCs, micro VCs, uh, and bring them into cap tables, partner, you know, and, and so that we can just uh, you know, create a larger and more vibrant ecosystem. So that's my last comment. And uh, again, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here and look forward to collaborating in uh, many more ways this year and onwards.
Definitely. I mean, uh, I have to say that I miss a lot my trips to India. I, mean, I haven't traveled a lot during this during this uh, year, year and a half. But uh, but even COVID caught me in India. So uh, I mean, I like the situation. But when everything was really bad in uh, in Shanghai, I had to extend my time in uh, in India, which allowed me to 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 interact a bit more with the ecosystem. And I've always felt really really welcome there. So definitely, this collaboration is something that uh, that I think we're all looking forward. And I also like to extend that invitation no, to to anybody from the audience that has not had that. Experience, but the, I find this startup and entrepreneur ecosystem in India at least quite welcoming and open, easy to interact. So definitely looking forward to be able to travel and spend more time there. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Like, share, and subscribe to the Asia Startup Pulse podcast, and sign up to our newsletter to never miss another episode.